0: Bibles to 1st John chapter 5, 1st John chapter 5, and you'll find your place in verse 6. Tonight we'll look at 1st John 5, 6 through 13. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, you, O Lord, are faithful and true. Your testimony is true, for you are the God who is light, the God who is love. You keep all your promises, all your word to us. And you speak only that which is true. How could it be any other way? Father, we pray that as we come to your word tonight, that you would work in our hearts and in our minds to assure us of the truth, the testimony that you have borne, the testimony that you have borne concerning your son, Jesus Christ, that we might go from this place an even stronger foundation an even stronger assurance an even stronger certainty that these things that we have heard and read in these several weeks as we've worked through this letter that these things indeed are true we pray these things in jesus name amen well i want to begin with a question simple how do you know that someone speaks truly How do you know that you can trust someone? It's not a question that I haven't posed to you before. In some ways, it's been the theme of our study in 1 John. How can we discern truth from error? How can we recognize the true witness and the true testimony from the apostle and the lies? How can we discern the true speaker of God's word and the true teacher of God's word from the false prophets? that go about in our world this is a question that we must ask and we must answer we must understand how to discern in this way and John has taught us through this letter how we might do that by testing teachers and testing preachers and testing anyone who claims to know God by their confession concerning Christ his person and work by their character of love toward others and their character of faithfulness and obedience to God. These are vital tests that John has taught us to apply. Well, as we near the end of this letter, we're going to look again at how we can discern who is true and who is false. But here, John is going to turn us to an even more sure testimony, an even stronger testimony, as he points us to the testimony that God has borne concerning himself, Concerning his work through Jesus Christ. So, if you found your place in 1 John 5, verse 6, would you follow along with me as I read to verse 13? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, it will be helpful for us to see how this passage connects to what we read and heard last week. Let me remind you briefly that First John f- chapter 5 began with these words, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And again, First John 5:15 five, five reads, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. These two statements about Christian belief that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the son of God summarize all that we confess and all that we believe concerning the person of Christ. Of course last week as we discussed and as we'll see tonight this confession is not just about who he is it's also about what he has done and as we draw together all that John has said about Christ his person and work we recall that he has shown us that Jesus the Christ the Son of God is the one who came in the flesh in the course of time he became incarnate as a man he lived as a man really and truly He lived a human life in our likeness. And he went to the cross. And he died for our sins. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. This is the simple truth that we confess concerning Jesus Christ's person and work. And of course, we can go deeper. And we can explore the meaning of these truths more fully. And we will in the months and weeks to come. But at its most basic level, We can summarize Christian faith in this way. Jesus is the Christ who had to suffer, die, and rise. Now John takes this idea up, this idea of Christian faith, and he turns his focus to that idea that he had to suffer, die, and rise with this statement that at first blush is a bit difficult to understand. He writes, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And we read those words and they're confusing. They're a puzzle. What does John mean that Jesus is the one who came by the water and the blood? Well, I think most commentators have come to the conclusion that we need to find our answer by looking at other texts that have come from John's pen. Other things that John has written and comparing this text with those texts. Many answers have been given throughout the history of the church and I'll briefly give you some of them just so you know the range of opinions that are out there. Certainly I won't give you all of them for we'd be here all night but some people would take the water and the blood as a reference to Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's an idea that has a lengthy history in the church but it's probably not a very good explanation of this text. It doesn't seem in anything in the context or other things which John has written to make sense of what he said here others look at it and think of it as a reference to what happened when Christ was on the cross that he was pierced and water and blood flowed from his side maybe that gets closer to the mark at least on one account but still it's a little bit of a strange answer probably the best answer however calls for us to look back to John chapter 1 and to see what we read there concerning the testimony that John the Baptist bore concerning Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, we read this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John who saw him. John the Baptist, that is. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so you see that John is speaking about his own testimony, but in his own testimony, in his witness, he's speaking about the testimony of God the Father. God the Father is the one who sent John to baptize with water. And he states that the purpose for which God sent John to baptize was so that the Christ might be revealed to Israel. So that he might be made known. And God himself bore witness to John and through John. Saying that the one that you see, the one upon whom you see the Spirit come and rest. He is is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So here, in this reference to the water, in 1 John 5, John seems to be looking back to that early testimony that came when Jesus came and was baptized, when he himself went through the water. You'll notice in 1 John 5 that he uses the language of going through the water and the blood. There in 1 John 5, as I try to find my place again we read this this is he who came by water and blood that could be came through water and blood it's the same idea there and here is the one here as we look back to the very beginning of Jesus ministry and the testimony of John the Baptist we see that he is the one who came by or came through water that in his baptism, when God the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, he gave his testimony concerning Christ. Now, some might take this as a, in 1 John 5 as rather a reference to Jesus' own ministry of baptism. And while that's possible, I think here the weight of the evidence supports the idea that this is a reference to Jesus' revelation self-revelation through john's baptism on the basis and the credibility of what god said to john and what god said from heaven when christ was baptized this is he who came by the water but this is he also who came by the blood came through the blood and here this is clearly a reference to the cross we see a similar language elsewhere in scripture of coming through something like this whether some kind of judgment Hebrews 9 12 for instance this is he who came by the blood is a reference to Jesus coming by way of the cross and here too there's a testimony concerning who he is and what he has done in fact Jesus himself bears witness in going to the cross for he all the way to the cross declared that this is what he must do, that it is necessary, that it was necessary in accordance with scripture, that he should go to the cross to suffer and die and rise. And by going as it was written of him and dying and rising, he gave his own testimony to the truth of God's revelation concerning him. And again, God the Father, by raising him up, gave his testimony to the fact that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, admittedly, there are other options for understanding this text and it's not 100% clear. Different commentators will take different positions and it's important not to get too wrapped up in any one position as if this is a uh, the, the, the place where you come down to rest and how we interpret through the water and through the blood is a matter of first importance per se. Rather, what we need to see is that the the testimonies, the witnesses that I am presenting to you, the witness of the Father, the witness of the Son, it is certainly true that the Father gave his witness to Christ. It is certainly true that Christ gave his own testimony concerning himself. And as John does say quite explicitly, it's certainly true that the Spirit gives his testimony in our hearts and in our minds concerning the truth of this. But perhaps, as some have said, maybe this is a reference to someone else maybe John the Baptist's own testimony for instance or maybe the testimony of the Apostles what I want you to see is that you no know, in all of these cases we have an agreement of testimony now John here is presenting to us the agreement of the water and the blood and the spirit there are three that testify and they are confirming one another and as I have argued and I think is correct The water is a reference to the Father's testimony concerning Christ at John's baptism. The blood is a reference to the testimony that we have through the cross, through what Christ bore witness to in his act of going to the cross. And of course, the Spirit testifies. And we have an agreement of testimony. But John himself, John the Baptist himself, is in agreement with that testimony too. And so is John the Apostle. And the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because we have a basis for evaluating testimony that is given to us in scripture for example in deuteronomy 17 god gave his people this principle for evaluating the testimony of people you needed in order to convict someone of a very serious crime in israel you needed the evidence of two or three witnesses two or three people who were speaking in a way where they confirmed one another's testimony. We need credible testimony from credible witnesses, and we need to validate one person's witness against another's. And that principle is applied also in the New Testament. For example, the Apostle Paul taught Timothy, saying, Do not admit a charge against an elder, against a pastor, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus in Matthew 18, in matters of church discipline, taught that we were not that we are not to exercise discipline by removing someone from the church except on the basis of two or three witnesses. This is a biblical principle for evaluating testimony. And here John has given us based on this principle an argument that the testimony that we have received from John from the other apostles from the disciples of our Lord that testimony is credible because it's validated by Confirming witnesses. It's validated by the testimony of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's validated by the testimony of the apostles. It's validated by the testimony of the Lord's disciples. It's validated by the testimony of many witnesses. And we have seen that from the beginning of John's letter. I only need to remind you of the very opening words of this letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. These testimonies, in agreement, confirm to us the truth of who Christ is. Why does this matter? Well, let me remind you of the historical context in in this early church. The historical context for John's early readers. They were faced with the threat of false teachers, there were men who had gone out from their midst, who we call the secessionists. That is, they departed from this church. John already wrote about them. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And as John's letter has unfolded, we've seen that they have a different testimony concerning Christ. John has not articulated their testimony in all of its details, but we can piece together the puzzle and figure out pretty much what they were saying. We've already seen that in the weeks that have passed. We've seen that they were denying their sin, either the seriousness of their sin or the reality of their sin, or in some way they were denying that they were sinners. We've seen that they denied their need for God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. They were claiming and making big claims that they knew God, that they had a relationship with God, that they were the ones with knowledge, and yet they were denying so many things that the apostles had received from the Lord and passed down. Even in their lives, they failed to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. They failed to keep God's commandments. Not just failing once or twice or because of their own human weakness, but failing as a matter of course because they rejected God's commandments that kind of failure this is the character that we can figure out of, about the secessionists just from reading John's letter and in the years that followed we see that these kinds of false teachings would develop in different directions in the early church we don't need to dwell on all of these different denials that uh, that arose in the early church but we can summarize them in this way those who followed the secessionists in the years to come would be those who may have confessed that Jesus came by the water, but they denied that he came by the blood. They denied that he went to the cross. They denied that his, cross, uh, his work on the cross was necessary for our salvation. They denied that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified for our sake. Some would deny it by saying, for instance, that he only seemed to Go to the cross. That is, they'd say that at his baptism in the Jordan, the Spirit of the Christ came upon this random man from Nazareth, but departed from him before he went to the cross because they couldn't in their minds understand how it was possible that the Son of God should be crucified. The Apostle Paul writes about this kind of thing in 1 Corinthians. When he says the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I will dest- for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He goes on to speak about the wisdom of this age and the foolishness of Christian wisdom. And yet, and then as we read on in verse 22... He says that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see what Paul is dealing with there. Whether someone thinks they have the wisdom of the Jews or the wisdom of the Greeks, they all agree that the cross is foolishness. The Jews see it as a stumbling block. The Greeks see it as foolishness. But those who are called, who have received it, understand that this, in fact, is the wisdom of God. And John wrote to a church, he wrote to a people that were facing false teachers who were denying that Christ came by the blood. This crucial testimony to who he is and what he came to do. They said, it's not really true. Now, in our own day, There are many who continue to deny the blood. They continue to deny what John has taught us in this letter. They continue to deny the Christian faith, albeit in different ways. The more common denial in our day is the modern uh, denial that sees Jesus as just some kind of wise teacher, an ordinary man. In some sense, they're denying the water then too. They're denying that The Son of God really came in the flesh. He was a wise man, they'll say. He was a great teacher. Maybe even a prophet. But, oh no, no. They'll deny he, he cannot really be the Son of God. That kind of thing doesn't happen. Or, you know, maybe he died on a cross, but he didn't really rise from the dead, they'll say. That kind of thing doesn't happen in the course of history. And these people who say this, what are they doing but denying that he came by the blood? But John would have us know that we have a strong testimony that indeed this is true, that Christ came, truly became a man, and he truly gave his life for us. And that testimony is credible because God the Father bears witness to it. God the Son bears witness to it. God the Spirit bears witness to it. God's prophets bear witness to it. God's apostles bear witness to it. The disciples of our Lord... For 2,000 years, Christians have borne witness to the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and died for our sins and rose from the grave. He came by the water and by the blood. Now, as I've already stated, we have the secessionists who gave a different testimony. And they also had a multitude of witnesses and so we need to figure out how do we evaluate their testimony or to put it in a modern context in our own day the wise of our, men of our day the, the, the scientists of the world the archaeologists the historians the people who who are professors at the great institutions they'll say this isn't so this is not what really happened they'll deny it their testimony is based upon their expertise Based upon their degrees, based upon the fact that they are recognized as scholars in our world, they're recognized as the people who should know. We have two testimonies, and we need to figure out how to decide who to trust. And it's very simple. John says to us in verse 9, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whatever men may say, however smart they are, however many degrees they may have earned, however many books they may have written, their knowledge can never come close to even approximating the omniscience of Almighty God. God knows all things. God made all things. He sees the end from the beginning, and he has borne witness. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 will say, Let God be true, though every man were a liar. If every single person in this world, outside this room, lined up outside that door and said, we know and we are sure and we believe that you are wrong and God's word is false. Still, all of their cumulative knowledge, with all of their technology and all of their study and all of their books and all of their expertise can never even come close, can never even scratch the surface of God's infinite knowledge God is greater his testimony is greater it really is that simple our triune God has borne this witness concerning his son Jesus Christ concerning the son Jesus Christ that's the testimony we must trust that's the testimony we must believe but God has not left himself without human witnesses either as I've spoken As I've said, we do have a great cloud of witnesses to borrow the language from Hebrews 11. We do have many who have gone before us, many in our own day, many who have studied God's word, many who have researched in history, many who have studied science and evaluated these things and will say what God has said is true. We believe it. We confess it. But at the end of the day, that's not the basis for our belief. At the end of the day the foundation the basis for our belief is that god has indeed spoken god has indeed borne witness concerning himself we ought to believe what he has said concerning his son for if we receive the testimony of men if we are conditioned to believe that a few men in agreement who are credible witnesses should be trusted how much more our triune god whoever believes In the Son of God, John goes on, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. You see what John is telling us as he expounds upon what God's testimony means and how it affects us, that we who believe that We now receive that testimony, have it in ourselves. John has written about this as he speaks about the Spirit's work in our life. The Spirit who is truth. The Spirit whose role John has presented is to point us to Christ and to bear witness to Christ again and again. That's what the Spirit does in the life of the believer. He gives his stamp of of authority, approval to the message that we've received. He speaks to us, not in That audible kind of voice that you can hear whispering in your ear. By giving us the sense of the truth of God's word. He confirms it to our hearts. He confirms it to our minds. He causes us to be born again so that we might see these things as true and right. We have his testimony in us. If we believed in the Son of God, then we have God's testimony in ourselves. And it is implied, therefore, that we become witnesses like all of those other witnesses who have borne witness to the truth of the gospel, we join that great crowd as we add our voice, add our testimony, affirming the things that God has done for us in Christ. But whoever does not believe God, whoever rejects his testimony, in effect, he's saying that God is a liar. John has said something similar already. You remember in 1 John Chapter 1, in verse 10, we read, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. It's not as if to say that God actually becomes a liar. No, it, it, it's as if to say that God's creatures, God's, uh, someone who God has made, is accusing God of being a liar. But John wants us to feel the gravity of that accusation, the gravity of that claim. He wants us to see how grave it is to reject the message that God has given us concerning his son. In effect, we're saying if we do that, that God is not true. In rejecting his testimony, we're saying that he's a liar. Of course, we would be wrong to say that. And yet, that is in effect what it means to reject the testimony that he has borne concerning himself. It is a grave thing. It's a serious thing. It's something that we must be warned from. It's something that we must not do this is the testimony that God gave us excuse me and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son John continues to expound upon the testimony that God has given us the witness that he has given us it's not just a fact he's not simply saying that Christ died and that he rose and that he really is the christ and he really is the son of god and uh, that's a really interesting fact so let's all go home and think about that that's not the end of god's testimony no there's a so what for us there's a purpose for us god's testimony is that we have eternal life through faith in christ that god who is life has given life to his son so that all who believe in him might have eternal life in them. God has said that. And it's an amazing thing. It's simple. It's straightforward. And yet it's an astounding and amazing thing to contemplate the very fact that we can have eternal life. And God has said so. Sometimes we doubt that witness too. Not because we're like the skeptical atheist who simply... Won't believe that it can be so. But we doubt that it really can be so for us. Can I really receive this eternal life from God by his grace? I mean, think of what kind of a sinner I have been in my life. What kind of skeletons I might have in my closet. What my history would look like if someone wrote my biography with detailed accuracy. Including my thoughts and all my deeds and all the things that I've ever done. How is it possible that the eternal God can welcome me into his fellowship and through faith in Christ grant me eternal life? And yet, God has said it is so. And he calls us to believe it. He calls us to embrace it. He calls us to rejoice in this awesome truth that he has indeed given us eternal life. It does not depend on us. God would have you know depends upon the Son of God in whom is life and through whom we might find life. We must know that and we must be reminded of it. We must repeat it. It does not depend upon us. It depends upon God who gives life to whom he wills. For that, we can only say thanks be to him who is life and who gives us life. Again, in verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's a very exclusive testimony to. You can't get that life in any other way. It's not the case that God is saying that Jesus Christ is a way to eternal life. He's not saying that Jesus Christ is a way to be saved. He is saying he is the way the only way, exclusive from all others. There is no other way to have life except through Christ Jesus. This is the testimony of God that he has borne witness concerning his son. Life is found in one and one alone. It's found in Christ Jesus. We need to hear that too. That also is something that our world will reject. The philosophers of our age will reject that as bigotry. They'll say it's hateful. They'll say, how dare you say that your way is the only way? But it's not us ultimately. We're not the ones ultimately who are saying it. It's God who is saying it. There's one who is life. There's one in whom is life. The One God of the universe through whom and for whom and by whom all things were made. He is the only one who is the giver of life and he has declared it to be so. Will our philosophers accuse him of some kind of evil, some kind of wickedness? We dare not do that ourselves. God is good and God is gracious and no one of his creatures deserves life from him. And yet he has freely and graciously offered us life, freely and graciously given us life. And he has freely and clearly and graciously shown us how we might have that life. There's one way, open and free to all who will receive it. That way is through his son, Jesus Christ. And here as we come to this final verse then of 1 John of our passage tonight, in 1 John 5, 13, John tells us why he has written all of these things. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life john has not written to them and he has not written to us anything that we have not heard before he is reminding us of the things that we have heard and we will hear again and again and again he reminded them of things that they had heard things that they had known but he did it for a purpose because their faith had been unsettled by people who were denying them so john wanted to encourage them And he wanted to give them a stronger foundation so that their faith might not be unsettled, but so that they might know that if they are those who have believed in the name of the Son of God, that they might know that on that basis, indeed, they have that life that God has offered us in Christ. This is why I preach to you this letter, for the very same reason. I want you to know, I want you to have assurance, I want you to be sure. That you have eternal life in you from God through Christ. If you have believed in the name of the Son of God, you must know that. You must believe it. You must receive this assurance that God has given you. That God has given us through his word. That is why John wrote. And that is why I preach. Let's pray. Father in heaven. No man could be so bold to dare to make such claims as these, except that you, O Lord, should bear witness to them. But you have indeed given your sure and true and faithful word that these things are so, that these things are true, that if we have come to Christ in faith, we can know for sure that we have eternal life. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. That you have given us these assurances. Through your servant, John. We pray that you would write them to our hearts. To our minds. That we might go from this place. Sure that we have the life that comes through Christ. Not tossed to and fro. With one doubt upon another. Because some expert speaks in one way. Some philosopher A person on the television speaks in another. We pray, O Lord, that instead that you would cause us to find our firm foundation. in the testimony that you have borne concerning yourself. For it is true. We pray, O Lord, that you would send your spirit. To speak into our hearts. To assure us of these things. That we indeed might know that we have this testimony in ourselves. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.